everybody. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is the news from BuzzFeed News. Today, we've got some pretty shady receipts from that infamous Trump Tower meeting from June 2016. Then we've got our fake news quiz. And finally, we'll make sure that you can spend your life watching TV and movies that are worth your time. Onward! So the BuzzFeed report says there's even more suspicious money transfers that then came in after Trump won the election. Colin Kaepernick's appearance in a new Nike ad campaign is prompting both vocal support and angry backlash. Hurricane Florence made landfall this morning in North Carolina, where forecasters are warning of a once-in-a-millennia flood. We begin today with a flurry of money that was transferred 11 days after the infamous June 2016 Trump Tower meeting. You know, the one everybody's been talking about basically since it happened. On June 3rd, 2016, June 2016, Trump Tower meeting. Trump Tower meeting with Russia. About that meeting. Meeting and then the meeting itself. That meeting that Donald had in Trump Tower. To confirm what this meeting was about. That's the meeting where Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort met with Russian officials to allegedly get dirt on Hillary Clinton. Investigative reporters Anthony Cormier and Jason Leopold who lives in a cave entirely built of FOIA requests, as far as I can tell, followed the money straight to a small, windowless office in an unremarkable building in New Jersey. Today on The Lead, Editor-in-Chief Ben Smith talks to investigative reporter Anthony Cormier about the big scoop. So, Anthony, there are a lot of, a lot of different tendrils to this story. It took you to a lot of places. One of them was a door in a subdivision in New Jersey. So can we just start there? Tell me about the door to Suite 309. Sure. Uh, Suite 309 is a windowless, rather nondescript office uh, with a lock that fascinates me to no end. It's this very big, silver, major lock on a door that dozens of journalists have gone and knocked on over the years because there's a, a, a group of businesses that are located there, and these businesses are connected to this Trump Tower meeting. But it's bizarre because it's a really, really sort of fairly run-of-the-mill office plaza. There are pain management clinics and realtors and the like, and most of them have signs and windows, and you know what they do, but Suite 309 is this mystery. It's just a brown door with a silver lock, and when you knock on it and ask for the people inside, all you get is this gruff, disembodied voice from behind the door who refuses to talk to you, will not open and doesn't even accept your business card or want to hear from you. And that that door, that suite, is uh, in a lot of ways the epicenter of this vast network of companies and secret accounts and money that is part of not only the Mueller investigation, but the sort of wider look into um, the finances of people in Trump's world. Right. And this this extraordinary new information you guys got really opened opened a huge new window onto that world. And I think one of the reasons it's so strange to wind up at that office plaza is that these are not modest local New Jersey business people, right? I mean, basically, the story is about how these huge sluices of money came through the Aguilarov's bank accounts. As reporters, there are a lot of things that uh, you can choose to cover in the Trump administration. We made a we made a call a long time ago to to look at the money. It's a tried and true sort of investigative axiom, right? Follow the money, and so that's what we've been doing. We've been tracking the finances of the individuals who are close to not only the campaign, but to those in in, in Russia and beyond. I think one of the reasons. 
it's so strange to wind up at that office plaza is that these are not modest local New Jersey business people, right? I mean, just can you give us uh, some background on the Agarlov family? Sure. The Agalarovs are a very powerful, uh, wealthy family from Russia. They made their fortune in development. They have become quite close to the Kremlin. They are, in fact, one of the Kremlin's most sophisticated and favored developers. But what's interesting is you can see them in the United States. Aris's son, Emin, who is a part-time pop star, actually grew up in across the Hudson River. He went to high school in Tenafly. He, you know, he has deep roots there. They, in fact, the family has a couple of mansions uh, in New Jersey. And so it's a this really unusual juxtaposition of this mega-rich family with real roots to um, Azerbaijan and to Russia. But here they are living and doing business in New Jersey. And that's a, that, that became a red flag to investigators. It's a, it's a mark for them. They want to know how this billionaire and how this, these, their, their funds flowed back into the United States. And, and there's, uh, there's a lot in this story that broadly opens this window into how, how very rich people, particularly in Russia but all over, move money around in a way that makes it hard for journalists, for investigators, for anybody to know, to know what the hell is going on. But we have some sense – and tell me a little bit about what's interesting about the timing of the transfers that you unearthed. Right. I think to, to, your, to your first point, there is this global financial system that regular folks like you and I don't frankly understand. And it's, it's quite opaque and it's opaque on purpose. And so when you begin to examine the timing of the movement of funds, the wiring of money, you know, the, on the Agalarov side, their attorney and others will say, look, this is no big deal. This is how we do business all the time. When you talk to investigators, they look at the timing and they are enormously suspicious. So you can, you know, you've got this meeting on June 9. It had been planned for quite a bit of time. You know, they go to Trump Tower. They meet with Trump Jr. and Manafort and Kushner on the 25th floor. And but 11 days later, Aris Agalarov, the patriarch of the of this family, does an unusual thing. He uses his account in the British Virgin Islands, belonging to a consulting company. Remember, the British Virgin Islands is sort of known as an offshore haven. Well, Aris directs that company through a Swiss bank. And as we all know, Switzerland is a, is a sort of place where bank secrecy is a major part of the, the life, the culture. He directs 11 days after the infamous meeting, $19.5 million from the British Virgin Islands into a U.S. bank account. The same day, he takes a much smaller amount, again through a Swiss bank, about $43,000, and moves that into the U.S. We could not, for the life of us, get um, the Aguilarov family or their attorneys to tell us what that money was used for. We are, as always, open to any appropriate context. But investigators found such a large sum with that particular timing, 11 days after the meeting, long before the meeting had become public, to be quite a suspicious event. So the core question now is, what was this money for? Is that right? I, I think that's this, in, for lack of a better word, the $19.5 million question, right? It is, what did you do with the money? There may be a wholly appropriate uh, reason for that transfer. We'd love to know it, and we would have reported it. They've refused to tell us. And I think investigators right now are, I don't want to say they're stymied, but they don't have an answer, uh, at least as far as we could tell, they don't know and they want to know. They want to know whether that money 
was in any way related to Russia's interference in the in the campaign or the election. They want to know whether or not it was uh, legitimate. But but at this point, they don't, and and we don't either. And it is it is a really important point. We just don't know at the moment what that was for. And and you know, and as you said before, the point of of the, of using Swiss banks and the British Virgin Islands is for people to not know what you're doing with its money. That is a that is a feature, not a bug here. So you have this suspicious movement of money shortly after the Trump Tower meeting in June 2016. And then you have Trump winning, surprisingly winning, his, uh, the election in November 2016. Shortly after his victory, Aris, the patriarch of the family, uses a Russian bank account to begin funneling money into his son's personal checking account. And bankers noticed this account hadn't been really used before. It was essentially dormant. And then all of a sudden, you get really large, round dollar, like $15,000 even to like $75,000 even. Those funds begin working their way into this personal checking account in New Jersey. The sum of that is about $1.2 million. Bank examiners flagged it. They said this is an unusually a large spike of of money in a place that we haven't seen before. After this surge, they begin to track where the money goes. One of the places they find is they they, they look at a particular transaction. They see one hundred sixty five thousand dollars go into that account on November twenty second, twenty sixteen, not long after the presidential election. And the very next day, they watch another round dollar amount, one hundred seven thousand dollars, leave the New Jersey account and land in the account of a business called Corsi International. Corsi International is, again, based at Suite 309, and it's controlled by a longtime friend and an individual, Ike Cavalazze, who attended the Trump Tower meeting. It, to, to bankers, that's enormously suspicious. That, that's what they consider to be layering, right? They're, when they see a money move from account to account to account, they want to know why. They want to know why it's not a direct transaction. Why does it make pit stops along the way? We don't know. The individuals, including Mr. Cavaldi, wouldn't tell us. Um, and bankers and, and financial examiners are, 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 are sort of hot on the trail of this. And, and I think what's really important for people reading this story and listening to Anthony to note is that these activities obviously sound pretty strange to you and to me. You know a lot about the international financial system. I know a little. But the people who were calling these suspicious, the people who were filing suspicious activity reports to the federal government flagging these transactions were bankers who handle transactions like this every day and who are truly experts in this. And they were the ones who were in the first place raising eyebrows. And that's, to me, part of why this is so striking. Last question. I think you know a lot of people reading this want to know, what does it mean for the midterms? What does it mean for the Mueller investigation? Do you know? Anybody who tell and I say this all the time, anybody who tells you they know what Robert Mueller is thinking is going to look like a fool. But we, it is our understanding that people working closely with his team, they are actively investigating these transactions and others in a particular vein. They want to know, number one, was this money used in any way to interfere with the 2016 election? And beyond that, they've sort of cracked open a much larger world, this, this sort of global you know, financial web. And as we reported yesterday, IRS agents are investigating now. FBI agents are looking at it, not just through the prism of election interference, but 
possible money laundering or tax evasion. We're not saying that happened, but they, the FBI is actively looking at that. I don't think anybody knows whether Mueller's going to issue any more indictments or make any more moves before the midterm, but I would be shocked if he uh, was afraid to do so. I would be uh, surprised if the Office of Special Counsel, frankly, gave two dams about the midterms. These guys are, this group, these guys and gals are, are pretty aggressive, it seems. All right. Well, if you do want to sound like somewhat less of an idiot when you speculate about Bob Mueller, you should be reading Anthony Cormier, Jason Leopold's extraordinary series of scoops on the money trail around around Donald Trump, around his associates. Thanks for thanks for joining us, Anthony. Thanks, Ben. I'll see you soon. That was our big boss, editor in chief Ben Smith, talking to investigative reporter Anthony Cormier. That little sound means that JoJo is here to help you understand a little bit more about what you're hearing today. So text JoJo the word TRAIL at 929-236-9577, and you too can read The Money Trail, which is Anthony and Jason's big investigation. Again, JoJo's number is 929-236-9577, and it's also in the show notes for this episode. Listeners, when you hit share, you got to know that you're putting something into the world. And we here at the news, we want to make sure that those things that you're sharing with the world are real. That's why we have fake news you can use. Jane Lefaninko, sailor on the seas of fake news. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Hi, I'm uh, losing control of the ship. How are you? I am swimming, dog paddling through the ocean. <laughs> So you're here, as always, to give me the fake news quiz. What is on the dock it? Oh, oh, yeah, you're oh on the dock it. I yeah, get it. Because right. you made a ship metaphor before. That's right. That's right, Jane. That's why I, we're I here. I understand. I understand. All right. We're going to set sail to this quiz. Oh, God. In Japan, a company selling prank finger slicers accidentally sold real retractable knives. Is that real or fake? Oh, my God. Um, okay. I'm going to say that this is fake because it is not yet Halloween. And this seems like that razor blades in the apple myth of Halloweening. Yeah. When I moved to this country, that was the first thing that everybody warned me about on Halloween. And I'm like, I can't eat the candy. It's very weird. Or like drugs in the candy. It seems very sort of like in the vein of these like Halloween myths and it is uh, right. barely September and I am not ready for Halloween. I am not ready for pumpkin stuff. <laughs> I don't care. I don't want it. So I'm going to say this is fake. You are incorrect. <gasps> no. It's real. It's oh real. Um, oh, So... Wow. Gizmodo reports that a Japanese, essentially a Japanese equivalent of the dollar store, accidentally sold real slicers instead of fake slicers. Wait, I have to do another follow up about this, which is that like, okay, how is it possible that the same company sells prank finger slicers and also real finger slicers? Also, what is a why would they have a real version of this is my question. Well, I mean, I don't think that the real knife is meant to slice your fingers. I think it's just a knife for utilities. But they appear to be making both, I guess. So um, awkward mix up there. Wow. Did anybody get hurt? 
Nobody got hurt. It's all okay. But this is not the first time it's happened. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I I have been punked officially. <laughs> all right. Here comes the next one. As you know, Nike announced last week that Colin Kaepernick would be the new face of their Just Do It campaign. There's been a lot of backlash. So in light of all of that, here's the next question. The University of Alabama cut ties with Nike over the Colin Kaepernick deal. Is that real or fake? I feel like this is fake because the protests that I've seen have mainly been like white people buying Nike things and like setting them on fire or whatever, which is funny because they're already paid for. And it's kind of a, a silly way to protest. But I don't think that it is any longer possible for a large organization to protest Nike. I feel like they may have disagreements or whatever, but I think that like organizationally this Nike thing means that the larger machinations of capitalism are standing by anti-racism. So I'm going to say that is fake. So congratulations. You're correct. <sighs> That's a relief. Uh, you, siding, you siding with capitalism really uh, took the cake here. <laughs> um, so this fake is a, a really interesting one. It started out as a Facebook post of a picture uh, that faked a CBS News headline. It was shared over 30,000 times. It was then picked up on Twitter. A lot of people believed it and started arguing about it as if it's real. But of course, this is not true. So my tip for any screenshots that you see of a headline is to just Google the headline uh, because uh, those are easily faked. Great, great. All right. My last question for you is an international one. So we'll see how you do. Oh, God. A feminist blogger in Russia has been charged for inciting hate toward men. Is that real or fake? Oh, God. Is this real? I feel like this has the sort of like strum of truth to it because I think that being a feminist blogger in Russia is probably a difficult thing to be. I'm going to say it's real. You are correct. It is real. <laughs> And uh, it comes, actually, as there's been a lot of social media crackdowns in Russia on what people post um, and sort of persecuting them for that. So this woman who describes herself as a radical feminist, her name's uh, Lyubov Kalugina, she has been charged with inciting hatred toward men on social media. And it comes after an anonymous complaint from a man who said that she hurt his feelings, essentially. And she's facing five years in jail for incitement of national, racial, or uh, religious enmity. Okay. I mean, I feel like I was excited about the world sort of like changing little by little towards goodness in our second question. And now it's confirmed. The world is not ready for real change, necessarily. It's just little incremental bits. Look, if there's one thing you can count on is that I'll always end on a down note. Thank you, Jane. I appreciate you. <laughs> Sinking podcast since 2018. You know who that was? That was Jane Lefanenko, beloved Canadian and fake news expert. To take Jane's fake news quiz for yourself, text JoJo the word fake at 929-236-9577. Listener, I probably don't know you. Hi, Mom. I know you. But I feel like we've reached a point where I can be honest with you. You know, I got to call it like I see it. 
You, listener, have very likely spent some time just scrolling through Netflix and wondering what movie or TV show is going to catch your eye. It's not great, but we've all been there. So this week we have Highly Recommended, which is where we interrupt people at their desks at work, just lowering productivity across the board, in the name of finding you something to listen to or watch or read. I highly recommend Victoria Season 3. It is this period drama with Jenna Coleman, and it is so, like, peaceful to watch because the news is shit and the world is shit, and I just want to watch Jenna Coleman in beautiful dresses, like, you know, prancing around her castle. I know that I'm young, and some would say my sex puts me at a disadvantage, but I know my duty, and I assure you, I am ready for the great responsibility that lies before me. I would like to recommend Homegoing. It's a novel by Ya Gyasi. It's about this woman who had two daughters in Ghana in the 18th century, and you're able to see how slavery um, affected both the people in Africa and then also how it affected um, African Americans. A Star is Born, starring Lady Gaga, directed by Bradley Cooper, the movie event of the year. I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they like the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. So um, this is very self-congratulatory, but I just did a uh, program on Netflix called Follow This. I'm episode two, and I urge you to watch it because it's all about black survivalists. People of color are not prepared for, for disaster. They would have no idea what to do, how to purify water, how to preserve food in case they have to leave the city. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in the city when shit hits the fan. So nobody asked me what I wanted to recommend, but since I've got you here, I'm recommending a really fascinating docu-series called Hot Girls Wanted, colon, Turned On. It's produced by all women, um, one of whom is Rashida Jones, and it's a really fascinating look at this moment right now in sex and relationships. It's depressing, it's funny, it's interesting. Highly recommend it. To see all the things that we've recommended to you here, text JoJo the word Rex. That's R-E-C-S. And if you're like, wow, all these people on this show are like smart and cool and they like have good recommendations, I should follow them. You know the drill. Text JoJo the word Hoomst. That's W-H-O-M-S-T. And once you do, JoJo will send you a list of everybody who is on this week's episode. JoJo's number again is 929-236-9577. And that's our show for the week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, you know what to do. Rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your dog walker. I don't know. Tell everybody. Tell your dog. And give us every star that you possibly can. The maximum is five. This show was produced by the Pod Squad, the best team out there. That's Megan Dietrich, Alex Laughlin, Camila Salazar, Ahmed Ali Akbar, and me, Julia Furlan. Our boss is Cindy Vanegas Jaswale, and our music is by Chad Crouch. Big shout out to Vocal Fry Studios in Toronto for recording Jane this week, too. You can follow us on Twitter at BuzzFeed Audio, and please email us all of the things that you care about and all of the things that you think and all of your fanfic at podsquad at buzzfeed.com. And special thank you to JoJo, who, fun fact, is an expert at covering up paper trails. Don't ask me how I know that, but I, I know it. We'll be back on Wednesday with another episode of The News from BuzzFeed News. We're far from the shallow now. Oh. <laughs>